KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the hour, Amy Willens analyzes Israeli politics left, right, and center as we look toward a post-Netanyahu Israel. And Joan Walsh will talk about the lies that protect corporate profits and power. Her new book is called Corporate BS. But first, today's political update with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of the American Prospect. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Uh, the Prospect.com website on Wednesday posted the headline, Trump's lawyers invite Biden to assassinate him. Please explain. Trump has filed some lawsuits uh, challenging the prosecutions that the federal government uh, has uh, is subjecting him to. Uh, for chiefly for instigating the January 6th semi-insurrection at the Capitol. His lawyers were in the D.C. Federal Court of Appeals uh, earlier this week, arguing that uh, the fact that he was president rendered him immune from any such prosecution. This was not all that well received, apparently, by the three uh, judges sitting on this uh, appeal. And one of them basically asked uh, Trump's lawyer if a president ordered SEAL Team 6 to assassinate uh, a political enemy, uh, you know, like a possible presidential candidate, in his official capacity as president, would his official capacity uh, render him immune from any prosecution? This was a question that Trump's lawyer had uh, some trouble answering since it's quite so obvious that uh, a president should not be immune, even in official capacity, for um, essentially authorizing a, uh, a murder. Ordering a murder. Ordering a murder, yes. So Ryan Cooper of uh, The uh, Prospect, our managing editor, noted that uh, in more or less arguing that, Trump was arguing that Joe Biden could order his assassination, Trump's assassination, and by the legal theory uh, of immunity that Trump's lawyers were presenting, that would be okay. The, the actual defense offered by uh, Trump's uh, lawyer was that uh, the proper forum for charging a president with this sort of crime would be impeachment. Yes. Uh, however, uh, Trump has been impeached twice, but not convicted. And the lawyer was basically saying, well, if he wasn't convicted by the Senate, where all the Republicans have essentially become a cult, uh, believing in Donald Trump and little else, uh, except the further enrichment of the rich, uh, that would render him immune from further prosecution. Now, what Ryan Cooper pointed out was that one of the defenses uh, that was raised by a, a Republican senator for acquitting Trump in his uh, trial after he was impeached by the House for instigating the January 6th riots was that since he hadn't been convicted of this particular crime, that rendered him immune from an impeachment conviction. And Ryan, I think, aptly compared this to uh, Catch-22. If you can't be impeached, if you're not convicted of a crime, and, and you can't be convicted of a crime if you're not impeached. 
as the text of Joe Heller's book famously says, that's a hell of a catch, that catch-22. <laughs> that's a hell of a catch. Well, we remember that when Nixon resigned rather than face impeachment and Gerald Ford became president, he pardoned Nixon for any crimes Nixon may have committed as president. And we were all furious because not only had Nixon covered up the Watergate break-in, he had cheated on his income tax, as it turned out. But according to Trump now, Nixon didn't need a pardon because he was immune from prosecution. And I guess it was a mistake for Nixon to accept the pardon, which we were told at the time was an admission of guilt. How wrong we were. How wrong we were, although should Trump, God save us, win the 2024 election, I don't doubt that he will pardon himself from any convictions that he may have incurred by then, and probably preemptively for anything he may do thereafter. But wait a minute, I thought he doesn't need a pardon because he's immune. Uh, if you would like to place a small bet <laughs> okay. that he won't pardon himself if he's been convicted, I will accept that bet gladly. <laughs> okay. Well, on a more serious note, the prospect.com had another a striking headline on Wednesday, bombed back into the Stone Age. This is your piece of thinking about Gaza and its relationship to Vietnam. Yes, well, the quote comes from the autobiography of the egregious Curtis LeMay, who as a uh, general in charge of the B-29 firebombing, which incinerated most every city in Japan in the last year of World War II, you know, became the foremost proponent of all-out aerial bombardment as the proper way to go to war. And uh, since he wrote his autobiography shortly after he stepped down as chief of staff of the U.S. Air Force in the 1960s, in his autobiography, he said he thought the U.S. should bomb Vietnam back to the Stone Age. Well, we did drop more tonnage of bombs on Vietnam uh, by far than we had on Germany or Japan in World War II. But, you know, Vietnam is a pretty big place. And we certainly didn't, despite our free fire zones, which authorized bombing in vast swaths of the country, we didn't really bomb it back to the Stone Age. And it was, it was a little complicated, too, because we were, after all, fighting for a portion of the Vietnamese people, and we were fighting alongside the South Vietnamese army. So it didn't really, uh, wasn't really possible to bomb Vietnam back to the Stone Age. However, if you look at the policy uh, of uh, war making that the Israeli government has conducted in its war on Gaza, you'll find that none of those constraints really pertains. To begin with, Gaza really is very small. I, I, I did the math. It, it, its entire surface area uh, comes to about 60% of the city of Chicago, not, 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 not metro Chicago, just, just the city. And, you know, we are not trying, apparently, to defend any particular part of the Palestinians in Gaza. We do not have a Palestinian uh, army or even maybe a single scout fighting on the Israeli side. That is not the case. And if you look at the uh, damage reports that have uh, come out, it, it's the consensus is that about two-thirds 
of the structures in Gaza have either been destroyed or damaged, the vast majority by aerial bombardment, and at least 85% of the 2.2 million uh, people who live in Gaza have uh, essentially been exiled to this one little corner, um, even as their one-time homes are, have likely been destroyed. So I think it's fair to say that Israel has, uh, in some ways, really bombed Gaza, if not back to the Stone Age, at least having reduced its buildings to, you know, shattered stones and shards of glass and what have you. Israel, of course, under Bibi Netanyahu, has actually declined officially to put forward a post-war plan. But I would argue that their post-war plan is implicit in the manner in which they have waged war, uh, which is to say they've rendered Gaza in its current state largely uninhabitable. And they they knew that, and they, they were uh, counting on that to provoke what, uh, first of all, the right-wing ministers in Bibi's cabinet, and then Bibi himself, have now called for, which is the, quote, voluntary, unquote, emigration of uh, uh, the Palestinians in Gaza to other Arab countries. And from the viewpoint of the uh, right-wing nationalists in Israel, uh, this has really turned out to be, I think in many ways, the chief object and intent of this war, Uh, you know, uh, rendering the destruction of Hamas, which I think all of Israelis would clearly welcome, uh, an almost secondary concern, because this uh, erodes the argument, obviously, for a two-state solution, which is what the Israeli right has always opposed, uh, because if you, you know, drive the Palestinians out of contested territory, then, you know, you can have Israel uh, running from the river to the sea which is, I, I regret to tell Hamas, the more likely consequence of what they have uh, unleashed. Well, moving on now to American politics. Next Monday is the first voting in the 2024 primaries, the Iowa caucuses, where Trump is being challenged by Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley. No state in the nation turned more dramatically Republican than Iowa between 2012 and 2020. In 2012, Obama won a six-point victory in Iowa. In 2020, Trump won an eight-point victory. That's a 14-point swing over those eight years. I wonder if you have any theory about how to explain Iowa's transforma- political transformation. Yeah, I have a lot of theories. The There's no question that uh, rural and uh, small town Americans have essentially been abandoned, first by American capital, there has been less and less investment in uh, rural and small town terrains. Uh, A survey uh, which I invoked right after Trump beat Hillary Clinton, it had been really kind of untouted until then, a survey by the Economic Innovation Group in 2016, which is truly a centrist organization, found that uh, in terms of business formation following the 2008 financial collapse, they divided it into in metro areas, in mid-sized cities, 
and then in small towns and rural areas, uh, the, the percentage of business formations in the decade, really, uh, that it took to recover from the 2008 collapse, uh, the percentage of business formations that took place in rural and small town areas was a flat zero percent. Wow. Uh, uh, you know, and so this is an abandoned terrain. Most of the young people in Iowa who uh, go on to college leave the state. Uh, they move to Chicago. They move to Minneapolis because uh, there aren't any good jobs for young people, or relatively few of them, uh, in, in Iowa, which leaves a aging disproportionately white, disproportionately rural and small-town population, uh, which was ready-made for someone like Donald Trump to come in. Also, I would argue that in Obama's two elections, first facing John McCain right in the aftermath of the financial collapse, where Obama had clearly demonstrated he at least was in command of the facts, as John McCain was not. And secondly, uh, in 2012, running against Mitt Romney, who exuded elite financial privilege, Iowans were voting for the candidate who appeared to be better for the Iowa economy. By the time Trump ran in 2016, he pretty much uh, had in Hillary Clinton sort of a distaff version of Mitt Romney. And then he uh, exploited, you know, all of the anger, some justifiable, some willfully misplaced that uh, many Iowans exhibited towards liberalism and the Democratic Party. Pretty good theories. A related topic is one that you bring up uh, at the prospect, which is um, how Trump won the votes of so many white working class people in the Rust Belt states. Iowa doesn't really count that much as a Rust Belt state compared to Ohio, Pennsylvania, uh, Michigan. You wrote an article for The Nation, a cover story actually, arguing that the decline of unions was a key force that paved the way for Trump winning so many working class white people. You argued there that unionized voters invariably vote more democratic than their non-union counterparts so the democrats really need to amend labor law to strengthen workers rights to organize unions if they want to get former uh, supporters back Where, when when did that cover story for the nation appear 1986 i wrote it 38 years ago labor law has yet to be strengthened so that workers can unionize now, the book I was talking about, or the, what happened in places like Pennsylvania, was a, uh, I think, really remarkable, short, newish book that came out last year called Rust Belt Union Blues by Lainey Newman, who started it as her senior thesis, senior undergraduate thesis, for her professor, Theta Scotchpole, who was a noted sociologist and sociological analyst of political developments. I believe we're talking about Harvard University here. Harvard University, yes. Laney has since gone on to be a, a student at Harvard Law School, but uh, she really began the research during uh, the pandemic. She was home in Pittsburgh, and she began looking at whatever happened to the steelworkers in, in Western Pennsylvania, which was the capital of the steel industry. And, and, and you know, she, what she found was that the number of steel worker local unions had declined uh, quite alongside the decline of the American steel industry. 
where once there had been 143 locals of the steel workers <laughs> in Western Pennsylvania, by the time she got around to looking at uh, what was there, it was down from 143 to 16. What she found would be no surprise, I think, to people who remember the movie uh, The Deer Hunter, which is centered in a, in a, in a steel town and uh, kind of, uh, which is the local union and the sort of ethnic societies, the Slavic uh, social club, whatever dominated the town and and what she and and uh, and theta scotchpole have uh, have demonstrated very effectively i think is that with the disappearance of this world little remained of the kind of social ties that were very important to the formation of political opinion and the social organizations that remained were uh, were gun clubs basically and if your gun club wanted to qualify its members for discounts, it had to join the NRA. And so that became really what uh, had displaced and was a successor to a, a, a very pro-union culture and a very pro-union working class world uh, that had been really destroyed. And of course, all of the free trade agreements that uh, presidents up to, but not including Joe Biden, all that they supported, and that Trump too uh, turned against those trade agreements, had played a significant role in, in weakening that union steelworker connection. If I could just quote from your piece of, uh, about this book, uh, those local steelworker unions in Pennsylvania had their own hunting, bowling, and baseball clubs. Their newsletters provided information on new state hunting regulations. Their union halls were often the sites of weddings and other celebrations. That is the world we have lost. Oh, completely. And I think you can find union solidarity today among, let's say, grad student TAs. Uh, or Hollywood screenwriters. Or Hollywood screenwriters who, you know, have a fraternity of, of bitching about uh, pretty much everything. But uh, among blue-collar workers, which is precisely the demographic that has substantially defected from the Democratic Party, those worlds have largely been lost. They actually make the case in the book that uh, the building trades have in some ways managed to uh, retain that through their hiring halls. It's, it's a different kind of structure. It's not quite the insular world of, uh, of, of, a, of a steel town, but it does produce uh, a, a certain peer group that's visible to its members that, that is uh, essentially a union peer group. I wonder what today could be compared to the cities and towns with union culture in the, you know, in the 50s and in, in, into the 60s. I mean, we record our show in Los Angeles where there have been huge strikes over the last year and everybody knows not just about the Hollywood strikes, but about the UPS strike, about the teacher strike, about the hotel workers strike. Uh, of course, this is a world now of social media, but there are still picket lines on the streets that you see in LA but LA is one of the biggest cities in the world, not a not Johnstown, Pennsylvania. Are there any other union towns well, in America? Look, if you look for a city where one working class union still can center lives, the one city I can come up with is Las Vegas, yeah. where the, hot, uh, the hotel uh, union, Unite Here Local 226, 
which has 50,000 members and virtually all of, and really all of the hotels on the so-called Las Vegas Strip and is a dominant power in uh, Nevada, Nevada, Nevada politics, that, that provides something of a center of working class life, something of. It's, it's you know, the, the city is not as isolated as Johnstown or McKeesport once was. But what it has in common with Johnstown and McKeesport is not just the union presence, but the fact that in many ways it is a single industry town that sort of centers one's consciousness around that and around the union, which has won, as the steelworkers once did, very good uh, wages and benefits for its members. The book we're talking about here is Rust Belt Union Blues, Why Working Class Voters Are Turning Away from the Democratic Party. The author, Lainey Newman, started this for her senior thesis at Harvard with her advisor and co-author, Theta Scotchpole. Harold Meyerson, you can read him at prospect.org. Harold, thanks for talking with us today. Always good to be here, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Israel's war in Gaza has been going on now for three months, and the military said over the weekend they plan to keep the war going for another year. For comment, we turn to Amy Willens. She was the Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker. Her journalism has also appeared in The Atlantic, in The New York Times, and she's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation. She wrote the novel Martyrs Crossing, set at a West Bank checkpoint in the 1990s, among other books. She's also a 2020 Guggenheim Fellow, and she teaches in the Literary Journalism Program at UC Irvine. Amy, welcome back. Thank you, John. Well, Israel has now killed about 23,000 Palestinians in Gaza. More than two-thirds of them, we are told, are women and children. That's almost... 20 Palestinians killed for every Israeli killed by Hamas on October 7th, 20 to 1. But there is some good news from Israel, and let's start there. Netanyahu's year-long campaign to undermine the Israeli Supreme Court came to an end last week. Tell us about that. The Supreme Court was challenged, basically, by by a law passed by the Knesset, which is overwhelmingly in the control of parties loyal to Netanyahu. And this law proposed removing the court's authority to overturn government decisions, effectively then giving complete power of government to the executive under Netanyahu. That would have been the result had this law remained. And the Supreme Court of Israel overturned that thus keeping its own power. It was asked basically to vote on its own power or impotence. And it said, no, we need to retain power as a court to defend the country's constitution, such as it is, against the full reign of the executive. And the underlying issue here is that Netanyahu has been charged with corruption and is likely to be found guilty if this actually goes to trial, a little bit like our own President Trump and some of the arguments he's been making to our own Supreme Court. 
those two guys take policies from each other's playbook all the time. Really, the Israeli population was up in arms against Netanyahu before the Hamas attack on October 7th. There were demonstrations in the streets every week scheduled, and they were massive demonstrations against the attempt to uh, defang the Supreme Court. Even in spite of the fact that Israel is now in what many consider to be an existential war in many ways in Gaza, the court still ruled against the executive, even in wartime, because this was a, just a very obvious threat to Israeli democracy. Such as it is. Such as it is. And one of the things that's interesting to me is that in the old days, there was sort of a general consensus in Israel about what Israeli democracy was. And it was so understood that nobody ever thought to protect it. And no one ever imagined the Knesset passing laws like this. But that consensus has been lost as it has been lost in our own democracy. And there's some other uh, good news about Israeli politics. Uh, on Saturday night, thousands of Israelis protested again in Tel Aviv, Haifa, and outside uh, Netanyahu's house in Caesarea, calling for early elections, calling for the return of the hostages, and calling for the end of Netanyahu as prime minister. One speaker at the Tel Aviv rally, who had been evacuated from her home next to the border with Gaza, said, quote, the government didn't just hand over suitcases of money to Hamas, it sold us along the way, the residents of the Gaza border communities. It gave up on us and their lie blew up in our faces on October 7th. Uh, a lot of these demonstrations um, have been led by the families of hostages uh, around the slogan, bring them home, which of course requires a ceasefire. This turns out to be the one voice calling for at least a pause and in some cases an end to the war in Gaza. Well, one of the things about Israel has been in the past that any hostage taken was considered a almost familial value to the government of Israel. There's the famous case of Shalit, Ari Shalit, who was... Um, in captivity for an endless amount of time, and then four years, and then th a thousand prisoners plus Palestinian prisoners held by Israel were released in exchange for this one soldier. And now Israel has allowed these hostages to be under bombardment in Gaza, Israeli bombardment in Gaza, for for ninety days plus, doing nothing. It's astonishing to these families that nothing is happening to save their people. And in fact, that their own people are under friendly fire. You know, Netanyahu is untenable on so many fronts right now. Um, this is one. The other is the fact that his government was incapable or did not bother to defend the what is known as the Gaza envelope, which I love the expression. It speaks of Israeli um, lack of understanding of what's going on in Gaza. The army was away from the Gaza envelope when October 7th happened. So that's another strike against Netanyahu, who has never taken any responsibility, any shred of responsibility for what happened. Uh, recent opinion polls of Israeli voters show that a plurality do hold him responsible for the catastrophe of October 7th. 76% in the most recent opinion poll I could find want him to resign 
either after the war or during the war. Nearly 30% said they want him to go right now. Another poll found that nearly 6 in 10 voters from his own Likud party want him to resign. And the biggest worry on the part of the anti-war forces inside and outside Israel is that Bibi will prolong the war in Gaza because it's keeping him in power and it's keeping him out of jail. Uh, And many are worrying that, uh, including, we're told in the Biden White House, that Netanyahu may even provoke a war with Hezbollah for the same reasons. Israel has been threatening a preemptive attack on Hezbollah in Lebanon. There's been more fighting on the northern border uh, for the last week. Israel announced on January 1st the temporary withdrawal of several thousand troops from Gaza. People are worrying perhaps that could be for some kind of military operation in the north. And further, Israel just uh, targeted a Hamas leader inside Beirut, near Hezbollah headquarters. And today I read they also targeted and killed a leader of Hezbollah, not Nasrallah, but someone else was in Beirut again. I mean, if they keep striking inside Beirut, eventually Hezbollah, which I believe talks to the United States and doesn't want to go forward with a full-scale war against Israel, is going to have to act. We've talked a lot, John, about the situation of Netanyahu, his personalizing of Israeli politics. He was so freaked out by the continual protesting over his attempt to subvert Israeli democracy that, you know, many people who I talked to on October 7th, before we understood the full scale of the Hamas attack, much less the Israeli response, we said, well, this is like a gift to Netanyahu. Now he has an enemy who he can point at and say, oh, look at Hamas, you need me to be in the... But his response, I think, has been so violent because of the fact that he is perceived uh, as weak and uh, corrupt and incapable. And so he's had to respond with sort of a hyper-masculine brutality in Gaza to prove to Israel that he can be a tough guy. And I totally agree. He, He would perfectly well continue the killings in Gaza in order to fiddle with uh, his corruption trials. Well, eventually the war in Gaza will end. And my friends say what happens next after that is pretty obvious. The opposition will form the next government and that will be headed by Benny Gantz. There was a Ma'ariv poll last month that found 27% of Israeli voters wanted Netanyahu to lead the next government. 49% said they would vote for Benny Gantz and his party. Uh, this is a guy who formerly served as head of Israel's army and defense minister. He's a general. Uh, he was a general. He joined uh, Netanyahu's unity government after October 7th. He's kind of a centrist who's in the past opposed Netanyahu in the far right, but he's never really endorsed a two-state solution. He's never really opposed a Palestinian state. And right now, Benny Gantz is a senior partner in all the decisions about the war in Gaza. Some of his critics say he saved Netanyahu by joining the war cabinet, but he seems to be what's going to happen next. I think he's a savvy politician and he walked right into the midst of the fight. He walked toward the center line because he would like to be the next prime minister and he doesn't, you can't predict what's going to happen in a war. So the best thing for him, he felt, and not everybody joined him on the, in the war cabinet 
not everyone in the opposition who was asked joined, but he felt that having that position would put him in the best light to become the next prime minister as both part of this attack on Gaza, which many more Israelis than we would have expected have supported as much as they can. So to be part of defending Israel, which is the way they see it. If Netanyahu and the the IDF plan to continue the war in Gaza for another year, who who can stop them? It's Joe Biden, actually, and the United States. But really, Joe Biden, because he has to he would have to lead decisions about foreign aid and military aid to Israel. So far, he's been very open to Israel's requests, although you read all the time in the media about like behind the scenes, the Americans are going crazy, like don't keep doing this, you have to stop doing this, this is not playing well for Israel. Really, it's one of the situations where if you win the war, you're going to lose the real war. It's just not a good uh, as as the young people would say today, it's not a good look for Israel right now to continue with this when they've um, pushed almost all of Gaza's northern population to the south and then continued bombing. It's just not, you just don't do that even in war. There's a new Gallup poll shows that Netanyahu is viewed positively in the United States by 14% of Democrats 30% of independents. So Biden certainly has popular support for limiting, cutting back on military support for the war in Gaza. 55% of Republicans view Netanyahu positively, which does say something about our country. Yeah, Biden has wiggle room on this. He can, he could move ahead. But it, I think, you know, Biden is a traditionalist. He has been a friend of Israel forever. And the U.S. has been a friend of Israel forever. And I think he feels reluctance to sever that relationship or harm it in some way. But I think that he's going to have to do it if Netanyahu won't stop. Biden was in Charleston over this past weekend, and a uh, an appearance of his was disrupted by pro-Palestinian demonstrators. He told them, quote, I've been quietly working with the Israeli government to get them to reduce significantly, to get them out of Gaza. I'm using all I can to do that, close quote, Biden said. So he says many of the right things. He, he actually said the words, get them out of Gaza. I haven't seen him say that before, but certainly his administration has, has indeed been working quietly behind the scenes. I consider this a big step that he said publicly, I'm working to get them out of Gaza. Yeah, it is a big step, except that they are getting out of Gaza to a degree. So the Israelis themselves have said, we're, we're reducing troop presence. We don't know what that really means because Israel has firepower that doesn't require troop presence on the ground. Israel has drones. Israel has a lot of beautiful, you know, aluminum and steel toys that they can deploy, given to them by the United States, bought for them by the United States. So I've been working to get them out. There are interpretations one can make of those words. Of course, it is Joe Biden, so I think he thinks he's been working to stop them. So I would rather wait for the State of the Union speech and hear what he says there in formal terms when he's had to consult with his people right before the speech happened. Yeah, Bernie Sanders this week called for no more uh, U.S. funding 
for Netanyahu's uh, war in Gaza. He opposes $10 billion in unconditional military aid, but I think he's the only one in the Senate to do that. Yeah, it's it's not an easy thing for these people to do. There is, first of all, I don't know where the um, American Jewish population stands on this. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure APAC is all for continuing exactly. Yeah. And it's a very good point. We know that APAC challenges liberal Jews in primaries who fail to support Israel, quote, a hundred percent. Right. So let's wait till after the primary season um, and then see what happens with the political, the political face of an American uh, Jewish population. But recent poll I could find was from the beginning of November. Jewish registered voters approved of Biden's conduct of the war in Israel, 66% to 34%, two to one. Amy, any last thoughts? I think it's not clear that when this war ends, this will be a post-Netanyahu Israel, first of all. And it may not end until Netanyahu can be sure that it won't be a post-Netanyahu Israel. And that may play into the fact that it's only really Joe Biden with his money and arms who can end the war effectively. One last thing. Your novel, Martyr's Crossing, it was published in 2001, but as I recall, it's very much about a lot of what's been going on in the last three months. It's about the innocent babies on both sides. It's about how Israelis perceive even young children in Gaza as basically future terrorists and thus not innocent. And it's about a small child who becomes sort of a, a hostage to the situation in life and in death across the Israeli-Palestinian border. Amy Willens, you can read her novel, Martyrs Crossing, and you can read her also at thenation.com. Amy, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time to talk about the lies that protect profit, power, and wealth in America. They are documented and dealt with in a wonderful new book, co-authored by Joan Walsh. It's called Corporate BS. Joan, of course, is national affairs correspondent for The Nation and author of the book, What's the Matter with White People? She's also co-producer of the Emmy-nominated documentary, The Sit-In. Harry Balafonte hosts The Tonight Show. We talked about it here. We reached her today at home in Manhattan. Joan, welcome back. Thanks for having me, John. Well, I guess we should start by explaining that the title on the cover of your new book is not exactly Corporate BS. What is the actual title? Maybe you should spell it. <laughs> well, yeah. 
We decided, first of all, we wanted to give people choices. So, you know, you can curse if you want to, but officially the title puts a little asterisk in the word bull, you know what, for the I. B-U-L-L-S-H asterisk T. We were trying to have it both ways, I think, and uh, I'm not sure we succeeded on that, but, you know, you really sometimes have to call BS BS. And we just were so, this is an unpleasant image, but, you know, neck deep in it by the time we finished <laughs> our, our our research and writing, I think it was the only title that would really sum up the book. I want to start with some of my favorite examples of corporate BS that you feature in this book. There was a New York Times headline in 1994, Tobacco Chiefs Say Cigarettes Aren't Addictive. Then there was Ronald Reagan in 1980. The minimum wage has caused more misery and unemployment than anything since the Great Depression. And then you have Donald Trump in 2013. I'm in Los Angeles and it's freezing. Global warming is a total hoax. And then I found one more. Uh, this was when the Clean Air Act was proposed in 1970. Lee Iacocca, that was the president of Ford Motor Company, said this bill could prevent continued production of automobiles. It is a threat to the entire American economy and to every person in America. Well, That's a good one. one. That's a really <laughs> I, good one. I wonder what are some of your favorite examples? Well, I, you know, I, I love uh, the various defenses of slavery. I mean, our, our former vice president, uh, John C. Calhoun, ultimate proponent of secession in the Civil War, talks about how the Negro peoples of Central Africa have reached their highest moral and physical levels thanks to the discipline of slavery. It's just gone so well for them. I love all the ways that people defend child labor. You know, the child labor keeps kids out of trouble and is good for them building muscles. And they, the kids who work in the mines could beat the hell out of the kids who go to school. <laughs> There's just so much denial and, and so much creative denial. You know, I got to I got to hand it to them. Well, this book is not just an encyclopedia of corporate BS. You found that the lies fell into six categories. First was it's not a problem. What's a good example of this lie? There are so many, but I, one of my favorites is uh, the governor of West Virginia saying that coal mining accidents are just part of the natural mining process can't not not really a problem i mean it starts with denial but also they often put a little spin on the denial that it's not a problem it's actually a good thing and category two is the free market can fix it Yes, that comes up over and over. To this day, you know, people attacked the the Biden COVID plans as like anti-free market. But, you know, one of my favorites is the Chamber of Commerce fighting the Occupational Safety and Health Act by saying, we don't need this because safety is good business. Uh, there you go. Yeah, we don't, we don't want to hurt our workers. We want oh. our workers to be healthy. Yeah. Well, that doesn't help us. 
Category three is really the most evil of all. It's not our fault, it's your fault. That is really my favorite slash the opposite of favorite. I don't know what the word is. It's so evil. You know, I was talking to someone, uh, a European person who thought, it's really American. We internalize responsibility for our misfortunes. And so you've got, you know, mine, again, mining, so much stuff came from coal mining, comes from coal mining to this day. But it's like, we can't do anything about the man who refuses to wear his work boots and his helmet or, you know, in the textile industries, chemical poisoning. It's not it's not a problem except for the guy who drinks too much. Sadly, they're the they're the ones who are really affected. Yeah, this is also a big one of uh, Purdue Pharma defending OxyContin causing addiction. Addiction is caused by abusers not by people who uh, who we have told will be cured by taking our product. Right. It's the problem is the addict, you know, not not the medication and put, you know, they had whole strategy memos saying, you know, put the emphasis on the addict, make the addict is the bad guy or the good guys. Uh, category four of uh, corporate lies is it's a job killer. Oh, that applies to everything. Uh, <laughs> you know, obviously going back to slavery, that abolishing yeah, slavery yeah. would be a job Abol killer. Yes, yeah. Exactly. You know, starting with the New Deal, every single reform proposed was, oh, you know, that's all well and good, but you are going to kill jobs. You know, the, the going before the New Deal, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire in 1911, where 150 something, mostly immigrant young women lost their lives. Well, fire safety codes are going to just put Manhattan out of business. This is something where my uh, good friend and collaborator, Nick Hanauer, who people may know as a, a wonderful capitalist, a terrific billionaire who is always trying to raise his own taxes, he got involved and really helped spearhead the fight for $15 minimum wage in Seattle and had just case studies. I mean, in a, in a way, it, it was really intricate, but even in Seattle, liberal Seattle, minimum wage hikes like that, there will be no restaurant industry left in Seattle. And it's like, I was in Seattle recently and they have really good restaurants. <laughs> it's, it, it survived. Yeah, it's a job killer. This is, this is the reply to the argument for a higher minimum wage. Ever since the first minimum wage was introduced uh, in, in America, it's just a perennial. And, and after that, one of the other big arguments you found made it over and over is you'll only make things worse. Yes. And that that's another really evil one. Um, and, you know, it, it in my lifetime, my favorite, it, again, whatever the opposite of favorite is, is Ronald Reagan saying the federal government fought a war on poverty and poverty won. Yeah. That wasn't true. But it also a lot of these arguments uh, are, are kind, kind of set up a permission structure for people who they don't want to seem racist. They 
want to think that they're Christians or whatever, their religion, Jews, Muslims, their religion tells them to help the poor. But what if welfare programs don't help the poor? What if they hurt the poor? Uh, and that's what Reagan did with that. And it, it really, it, it you can see it everywhere that, you know, these, these well-intended programs hurt the people they're meant for. So let's just knock it off. And that's, uh, I was a little surprised to see how often the argument about opposing the minimum wage was phrased as defending black people. It's black people who are going to lose their jobs if, right. you, if you impose a minimum wage. So it's, it's, it's going to hurt uh, black Americans. And of course, we want to help African right. Americans. And, but, and black teenagers especially, but it's also like so obviously racist. It's like, Black people don't deserve a minimum wage. Black people don't support families. Black teenagers are probably helping support their families. I mean, again, it goes kind of goes back to slavery. Let's keep those people that we want to help in this other category where they belong, where we're helping them by basically mistreating them, by not helping them. So the arguments were, it's not a problem or the free market can fix it, or it's a job killer, or you'll only make things work worse. And if all else fails, what do corporations argue then? It's socialism, <laughs> obviously. You know, this goes back to, again, the new deal it was just so, you know, such a scary period in, in the thirties after the depression. It, and we did have an actual Soviet Union. So socialism was not just something in, you know, individual cities or, you know, parts of a country, but a real thing. And that just became the complete catch all. And, you know, you've got Ronald Reagan going down in history saying Medicare was socialism. And if, if it passed, uh, you know, we would spend our twilight years telling our children and grandchildren about when people were really free. <laughs> he just, he shows up everywhere. It's, it's almost like he's a time traveler. You know, he's been, he's just been in every, in every debate. One of my, so every democratic president going back to FDR has been called a socialist and, you know, Ron Johnson, Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin, perhaps our dumbest Senator, but there's also Tommy Tuberville. Um, you know, he just goes off on Joe Biden. I can't get inside the mind of this liberal Marxist socialist, Joe Biden. Um, and Biden has his issues, but when he's on, he's on. And, and he gets confronted with this and he says, I fought a primary. I won a primary and I beat the socialist. Do I look like, and we know who that is, beloved Bernie Sanders. Do yes. I look like a socialist to you? <laughs> um, and, and I will say about that one, I, I still think it, it, it was definitely worth including because it has set back so much progress in this country, but you know, it's fading. It's fading as, as a thing. We have real live socialists, you know, like Senator Sanders, like AOC, many more, you know, doing good things. And, and also some people are offended by this. I'm not turning out to be incrementalists because that's the way we get stuff done in this country. So, you know, they're not scary. What they, what they want and what, you know, free college and Medicare for all, 
Green New Deal, all those things sound really good, especially to younger generations. So it's less of it's less effective than it was, which is why Joe Biden could laugh at it. Of course, it's not surprising that corporations would work hard to protect their profits. But was there anything that surprised you that you found in putting this book together? I, a couple of things jumped out at me. You, the rise of a union busting industry in the 70s and 80s really built on all of these arguments in an interesting way. And, you know, I think that that has had such horrible consequences for all working people. Everybody's living, everybody but the riches living standards were really depressed by the the weakness, uh, the, the weakening of union power. Um, and I don't think I'd ever put that together. Um, I think I was surprised by, and we have a whole case study on this, the fact that the fossil fuel industry, um, Exxon, Mobil, all of them, they really did understand that climate change was a thing, global warming, whatever we were calling it back then. And they flirted with, maybe we have to deal with this, maybe there are some things we should do. And then they went to full denialism. We don't know, the, the, you know, the, the evidence isn't in, don't believe the non-science. And I don't. I despise the Sacklers and what they did with Purdue Pharma, but obviously the fossil fuel industry, knowing what they were doing, being kind of close to admitting it and working for a solution, and then just 180. Nope, this isn't true. We have no proof. We're fighting this tooth and nail. That was really depressing. And I feel like since we finished the book, a lot more stuff really great reporting has come out to make that case or to prove that case. But we got to a lot of it in the book, and I was proud of that. I wonder if you found any changes in the lies told by corporations over the decades or over the centuries since 1923, or, or are the lies pretty much the same sort of thing now that they were 50 or 100 years ago? There's one big change that I really think is important, and that is I think there's much more of a consensus of, or wide, widely held belief, understanding that the free market will not fix climate change. That is something we've got to come together around. And we're not doing enough fast enough, uh, but I, I feel like that has become much more of a mainstream understanding that has forced the other side to really play defense. And, and that's a good thing. Lots of hard work by our friends has gone into refuting corporate lies, lies about, you know, the minimum wage, workplace safety, environmental regulations, consumer protection, uh, lots of excellent scientific work, lots of economic research challenging the arguments put together by the right wing think tanks and media and political figures. Uh, in this book, you have the necessary facts to refute the lies, but you deploy a different tactic, ridicule. I think that's a necessary weapon. And it's also a lot of fun. I really love the fact that the book is very well designed. We have cartoons, we have pull quotes. I'm not saying we dumbed it down because you know we didn't. But we really intended to be a handbook, something you can dip into. You don't have to, you know, necessarily sit and read it in one sitting 
but you should keep it on your coffee table or on your desk because you're going to need a quote from this. And it's it might just jump out at you because we've got, you know, re reproduced headlines. Um, it's really written to make it easy to use, but also to make it funny, to just let's just tell everybody these these corporate hacks are just recycling they're making millions of dollars recycling the same arguments and it's really stupid and let's try to stop them joan any last thoughts i just have to give so much credit to one of my co-authors donald cohen uh don has been an advocate and a writer uh, activist for many years and he started something along with nation writer peter dreyer i should add called the cry wolf project in his lobbying for good causes you know not a lobbyist like that he was finding th these arguments over and over and he created a compendium of i am not kidding thousands of lies i mean we just had such a wealth of lies to go through um, thanks to Don. And so I, we could not have done it without him in many ways. It really is his project. Joan Walsh, she's co-author of the wonderful new book, Corporate BS, Exposing the Lies and Half-Truths that Protect Profit, Power, and Wealth in America. The keyword here is spelled B-U-L-L-S-H asterisk T. Joan, thanks for this book. And thanks for talking with us today. Thanks for having me. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks, as always, to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Living in the USA.